It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 236 for April 3rd, 2010. Recorded April Fool's Day, April 1st, 2010. And speaking of that, if you read last week's article about no Windows 8 and the next stop for Microsoft being Windows Y, but you didn't follow the link, you might not have noticed that April Fool's Day is an anagram for Lars Yip Uldorf. I have spent, though, much of a week without Windows... Although Linux offers most of what I need, and probably most of what you need, it's not possible for me to give up Windows, and that will hold true for the foreseeable future. That's because I use Microsoft and Adobe applications, both at the office and at home, and those applications require Windows. But I kept wondering, could I survive for a week without Microsoft products at home? Let's look at that. I started writing this week's report in J-Edit instead of Ultra-Edit on my notebook computer instead of the desktop. And because the notebook is a dual-boot system, I was running Ubuntu Linux 10.10 instead of Windows 7. My goal was to use only open-source applications that run under Linux for a week at home. At the end of the week, I do need to return to Windows for access to the Adobe Creative Suite, which I use to create TechBiter worldwide. So this means six days without Word, Excel, or Access, without Outlook or the Bat, without Dreamweaver, InDesign, Photoshop, Premiere, or Premiere Elements. The Linux world has analogs for most of the Microsoft products, and many of the Adobe products too, but there's really no open source substitute for InDesign, Dreamweaver, or Premiere, and there's no analog in the Windows world for the Bat. It's an uncommonly robust email application, so I thought it might be a long week. Just a few minutes into the test, either JEdit or Ubuntu became unresponsive and I needed to reboot the system. This is exactly the kind of thing that can happen with a Windows system or under Apple's OS X. Under Windows with UltraEdit, my lost paragraph would have been saved. In this case, it was lost. Or so I thought. Later, I discovered that JEdit had indeed saved a copy of the document and that my missing paragraph, or what I thought was a missing paragraph, was no longer missing. And that's about all I would ever miss. A paragraph. When DOS ruled the desktop, I pressed Control-S at the end of every paragraph to avoid losing work when the computer crashed. Not if, but when. Although I no longer consistently do that because Windows 2000, Windows XP, and Windows 7 have become increasingly stable, and the programs that run on them also better, I still save frequently. So what puzzles me about the Microsoft haters I encounter is that they don't seem to notice with OS X or Linux when those operating systems crash. I've used Linux off and on for five years or more. I've used Apple's OS X since 2001. Both Linux and OS X crash, as does Windows. Every operating system crashes. A computer is a computer. An operating system is an operating system. At this stage of hardware and software development, crashes, unfortunately, are still to be expected. The balance of my report will be more in the form of a diary than a formal report, things that occurred to me during the week without Windows. The first thing that came up was password management, and I discovered that I couldn't get there from here. 
I have a lot of passwords, and most of them aren't exactly memorable. Even if they were memorable, I'd have trouble remembering, site by site, which one is in use where. Does this one use memorable password 37 or memorable password 52? On Windows, I use KeePass 2, but that's not available on Linux. Instead, there is KeePass X, which is essentially KeePass version 1. Unfortunately, KeePass X doesn't understand KeePass 2 files. It would understand a KeePass 1 file, but I can't export that from the Windows system. I could export an XML file, but KeePass X didn't understand that either. I could export a CSV file, but KeePass X doesn't import those. <sighs> I then tried Revelation Password Manager. No luck. KeePass encrypts the password file, and that's important, particularly on a notebook computer. But I'm not going to spend all day entering accounts and passwords into a new application on the Linux machine. Instead, I discovered that I could install CryptKeeper and set up an encrypted directory. I then opened the KeePass CSV export in the OpenOffice spreadsheet program and saved it as an ODS file in the encrypted directory. Problem solved. Ubuntu turns out to be a great video player. Both DVDs and saved videos in various formats work exceptionally well, at least once you find either the right player application or the right plugins, or some combination of the two. This might be partially because Linux seems to place a lighter load on system resources, and partially because I have fewer concurrent applications running on a Linux system, so that means a lower burden on system resources. The combined difference on system load is substantial. Another data point. Linux starts faster, stops faster, and sleeps more reliably. From power on to operating system main screen is about 35 seconds for Linux. The system becomes usable in about 40 seconds. That compares to 55 seconds for Windows with the system being usable in about 90 seconds. Shutdown time is even more dramatic, about 5 seconds for Linux compared to the usual 25 to 60 seconds for Windows. In addition to that, when I wake the Linux system from sleep mode, problems are rare. Windows, on the other hand, either crashes during sleep or crashes on restart at least 30% of the time. These tests were conducted on a single dual-boot computer, so hardware differences don't account for the performance differences. Here's an absolutely irrelevant and immaterial concern. I'm used to a Microsoft split keyboard, and the notebook has, well, a notebook keyboard that makes typing painful, literally, because of the unnatural position my hands must assume. The notebook is also at desk height instead of keyboard drawer height. This isn't an operating system problem, but I needed to fix it. Fortunately, I have an old keyboard. Unfortunately, it has a PS2 connector. Fortunately, PS2 to USB keyboard adapters exist for $2 to $10. Unfortunately, shipping for a $2 item is $10. Fortunately, Office Max has them in stock. Unfortunately, they cost $19 at Office Max. Fortunately, Staples has them in stock. Unfortunately, they cost $35 at Staples. Hmm. Well, I found a company that sells these adapters through Amazon.com. One company had them for $6 with a shipping fee of $5.00. Another Amazon seller had them for $1.35 with a $2.95 shipping fee. Done. Total $4.30, and I'll have it in a week. And I did. But as it turned out, the device was faulty. 
The vendor apologized and quickly refunded the $4.30. Then I discovered that I have an old Mac keyboard that I can plug in and use. Problem solved. Sort of. iTunes, of course, doesn't run on Linux, and one of the big mistakes I made with iTunes was selecting Apple's AAC file format, also known as M4A, for music instead of the more widely used MP3. And there aren't a lot of Linux applications that play M4A files, but Totem Movie Player does, so that was another small problem resolved. But can I use Linux to move music from iTunes to an iPod or a Touch? Probably not, but then I can't use Windows to do that either. The software that Apple writes for operating systems other than its own borrowed BSD isn't very successful. If I plug an iPod Touch into my Windows 7 64-bit system running the supposedly 64-bit version of iTunes, iTunes crashes. If I plug an iPod 3G into the Windows 7 64-bit system running the, again, supposedly 64-bit version of iTunes, iTunes not only crashes, but deletes all of the files from the iPod. That's really classy. I say supposedly because the 64-bit version of iTunes isn't really a 64-bit application. After all, it installs into the Program Files x86 folder instead of Program Files. So it may have some 64-bit components, but it's a 32-bit application. It's just so surprising to me that Apple would label a 32-bit application as a 64-bit application. When I run Windows on my notebook computer, I have an application that disables the touchpad mouse when I'm typing. So I went searching for something like that under Ubuntu Linux. What I found was better and required just three commands to download and install. I then ran the new application, set it to auto start with Ubuntu, and automatically turn off the touchpad whenever I plug in a mouse. It doesn't get a lot easier than that. I like that so much I went searching for a similar utility under Windows. Well, under Windows, it turned out that the mouse driver offered only enable and disable, but the driver was from 2008, version 11, and Synaptics is on version 15, so it was out of date when I bought the system. I thought maybe the update would have better functionality. Attempting to obtain the update crashed the Chrome browser, so I tried Firefox. An update that tried to load appeared to revert the version 4 release candidate of Firefox to version 3. Actually, I found later it didn't. And then it crashed. Eventually, I got the new driver, but setting a restore point before installing it caused Windows to crash. <laughs> nice. Well, I continued without a restore point, and the driver installation crashed, which wasn't too surprising, considering that everything else had crashed, so I then rebooted the machine. Windows crashed while trying to play the log-off sound, then, after watching Shutting Down for five minutes on the screen with no apparent computer activity, I pressed the power switch. On reboot, Windows explained to me that it had not been shut down properly. Actually, I already knew that. Several minutes later, when Windows was fully operational again, I started the Synaptics update again. The process told me that a previous version of the driver was already installed, and that I should uninstall it first. Now, most applications are smart enough to update previous versions of themselves. That one apparently isn't. When I closed the installer, Windows told me that it suspected the application hadn't installed properly. Actually, I knew that, too. I found the Synaptics driver and uninstalled it, and then, of course, it was reboot time. Again. 
Installing the new driver required yet another system restart, but you probably already expected that. The Windows 7 start menu had a new application, Synaptics Scribe. I started it, and the Synaptics icon appeared in the tray, but there was no option to turn off the trackpad when a mouse is plugged in. I checked Properties. The new driver has a dozen or more special gestures to make the trackpad more useful, but still no option to disable the trackpad when a mouse is plugged in. At this time, I was thinking of several gestures that would be appropriate, but I didn't really use any of them. As with all devices, there is an option to disable it. I selected that, and then I thought, ah, the user can save a profile, so I saved the profile with the trackpad disabled, thinking I had solved the problem. But Synaptics outsmarted me again. Selecting any other profile permanently re-enables the trackpad. Well, I usually have the mouse plugged in and I don't need the trackpad, so I just disable the trackpad. If I ever do need the trackpad, I also need a mouse to re-enable it. But if I have a mouse, I won't need to re-enable it. Hmm. Circular thinking. See, thinking. Circular. Now, there are still those who say, sincerely, I think, that Linux is just too hard to use. Although I could certainly cite instances in which Windows does something a lot more easily than Linux does, I have to point out that it took less than five minutes to find and install the process that disables the trackpad on command or when a mouse is plugged in under Linux. For Windows, the best I could do was to find a way to manually turn the trackpad off, needing a mouse to turn it back on if I ever want to, and that process required restarting the computer several times and consumed more than 90 minutes. So I have to agree, Linux certainly is a lot harder to use than Windows. One Linux annoyance is that Firefox updates arrive at a speed that can only be described as glacial. If you want beta or release candidate versions, you're encouraged to install them in a way that will make future updates difficult. And when the new version is released to all other platforms, Linux is, for some reason, at the back of the line. Firefox 4, which I've been using for a while on my Windows machines, was released on March 22nd, but not for Linux. Or, more accurately, it wasn't released in a way that Ubuntu users can install it automatically. Given Ubuntu's and Firefox's shared open-source heritage, I really don't understand this. Firefox 4 may show up on the Ubuntu Software Center or the Synaptic Package Manager in a week or two, but I didn't want to wait. Fortunately, Johannes Eva explained how to install Firefox the right way on Ubuntu. You'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It involves a quick and relatively easy manual download and installation, and with that I had Firefox running the right way on the Linux machine. So what about at the end of the week? Well, at the end of the week is a lot like at the end of the day, except the time period is a bit longer. At the end of the day, or the end of the week, I found that there's a lot to like about Linux. And that surprised me. Not. At. All. Let's call this next section Bits and Pieces. The first segment was so long that for variety's sake, the rest of today's program will be short items that struck my interest this week. If you're running Windows 7 or Vista, you may already have Internet Explorer 9, which is available in 32- and 64-bit versions, but only for Vista or Windows 7. The download was pushed out by Microsoft this week. 
My primary browser is still Firefox version 4 beta, and my default browser is Chrome version 10, official build 79063. But Internet Explorer could slow the ongoing market erosion because it is a very good browser. When compared to previous versions of IE, IE9 is faster and more secure. It's too bad that XP users won't be able to benefit from the hardware acceleration that's new to IE9 or to IE9's support for HTML5. Chrome and Firefox provide these. So, well, maybe this will accelerate the market erosion among the users of older operating systems. If Windows Update didn't update your browser to IE9 and you'd like to install the latest, you'll find a link to the IE9 installer on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but again, remember, Windows 7 and Vista only. And yes, Microsoft won't let you install it if you're using an unsupported operating system. Avatar director James Cameron says a sequel will be even better because the frame rate will be higher. The film frame rate used to be 24 frames per second. Television runs at 30 frames per second, more or less. Cameron is talking about doubling that. I quote Cameron, When you author and project a movie at 48 or 60, it becomes a different movie. The 3D shows you a window into reality. The higher frame rate takes the glass out of the window. In fact, it is just reality. It's really stunning. Cameron said that at CinemaCon in Las Vegas. That kind of frame rate would make the motion even more fluid than it already is. Cameron's production partner, John Landau, says the higher frame rate would eliminate a strobing effect caused by what he terms a 3D artifact. In 3D movies, the frame rate is essentially halved because the left and right views are projected separately. Microsoft haters probably aren't going to like this, but Microsoft led the effort to kill the Rustock botnet and doing so significantly reduced spam, at least for right now. Symantec says spam volumes dropped by about one-third worldwide after March 16th when the Rustock botnet was immobilized. Rustock was one of the most technically sophisticated botnets to spew spam. It had been active since 2006. So the next question is whether the botnet owners can regain control of their machines. And by the way, according to the Symantec report, the largest percentage of spam, about 12%, comes from the Russian Federation. Second place, a little less than 9%, is held by India. Brazil is in third place at 6%, the U.S. in fourth place at 5%. For the first time in recent history, none of the top ten spam sources was in Europe. <laughs> Windows 8 is coming. No, really, this isn't an April Fool's joke. Really, it is coming. There are reports that some of the larger OEMs... HP and Dell, for example, have already seen the code. According to Win Rumors, Microsoft has begun to distribute early copies of Windows 8 to key OEM partners. The distribution is build 7971.0.110.324-1900. Win Rumors says this is Milestone 3, so that's well before beta, well before any release candidates. The report notes that Microsoft so far has been extremely quiet on the Windows 8 front. Windows chief Steven Sinofsky took the stage at Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in January and introduced a technology preview of Microsoft Windows ARM support to show off an early build of Windows 8. 
Microsoft is partnering with ARM-based manufacturers NVIDIA, Qualcomm, and Texas Instruments to produce some new tablet devices. And I repeat, this is not the April Fool's edition. Google and Apple have been asked to ban the One Too Many app. All right, maybe that's not its real name. Attorneys General for Delaware and Maryland say applications that let smartphone users know where drunk driving checkpoints are located should not be permitted. The AGs have asked Google and Apple to eliminate the applications. Four U.S. senators made similar requests recently, and Research in Motion, the maker of BlackBerry phones, pulled similar applications from its online store. Delaware Attorney General Beau Biden says we're urging Apple and Google to do the right thing and join us in keeping drunk drivers off our roads, not provide them with a roadmap to avoid checkpoints that are meant to protect our families. Democratic Senators Harry Reid of Nevada, Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey, Charles Schumer of New York, and Tom Udall of New Mexico also recently sent letters to Apple, Google, and RIM, noting that more than 10,000 people die every year in alcohol-related crashes. The senator said giving drunk drivers a free tool to evade checkpoints, putting innocent families and children at risk, is a matter of public concern. And there's a certain amount of irony here. Microsoft sues Google and wants the European community to investigate Google. Microsoft says Google is cheating when it comes to search. Google has more than 90% of the search market in Europe, That leaves a little quick math here, less than 10% for Microsoft Bing. Google officially says that the action was expected. Google says it's continuing to discuss the case with the European Commission. Google's annual income is $30 billion, and most of that comes from search. Microsoft says it needs access to YouTube to compete with Google, and Google, of course, owns YouTube. Microsoft also accuses Google of preventing advertisers and online agencies from using third-party software to make the information accessible via competing ad platforms such as Microsoft's Ad Center. See, I told you there was some irony there. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.